is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Good, good. That music kind of abruptly comes to an end there. It doesn't fade out nicely. I'll have to, have <laughs> to do okay. a little work on that. Um, hopefully, life is going good for you. Everything's going Yeah, well? the... I don't know if our weather is similar to you in Utah, but it's really warm this week. So I'm feeling a little bit of extra sunshine and dopamine in my life this week, which is really lovely. I don't know if it's the same for you down there in Utah. Um, There's been a mix, some cold days and some warm days. We had our only dusting of snow maybe four or five days ago. and Hmm. um, But otherwise, uh, several kind of decent days, too. So you can tell that spring is starting to flirt with us a little bit. Yeah, I love it. That makes yeah. me excited. Yeah. Well, today we've got a great show lined up. We've got a person on that you and I both know, mm-hmm. uh, and his name is Phil McLemore. And so give me a second here, Phil. I'm going to try to fix a few things. And uh, there it is. Phil, how are you today? Great. I was Good. hoping uh, fixing Good. you could uh, get some hair on me, but I just have this halo. So yeah, no, no, no. That's that's <laughs> we, we all do the best we can, right? Um. So Phil, uh, you approached me a couple weeks ago and said, "Hey, I, you know, I've been listening to you guys' podcast on Almost Awakened, and I've got an idea." And you and I have had conversations in the past. I'll give you a moment to introduce yourself to the audience here in a second. Uh, but what we thought we would do is have a conversation around some practices that would help our viewers slash listeners uh, gain a different awareness about themselves and others and the universe around them. And uh, we thought that'd be really important to the folks that tune in here. And so before we get started, wondered if you might just uh, give us kind of a brief introduction about yourself. Sure. Hey, before I start, I I just have to say, Bill, your, your array of podcasts is so impressive. Um, it just shows a creative mind, and you have so many good people involved in so many podcasts. Um, I try to keep up. Yeah, it, uh, we're we're happy with it. It's a it's an umbrella. I think at this point we've got ten or eleven podcasts yeah. under us, including this one, the Almost yeah. Awakened podcast. And um, over the last three, four, five years, it was just me. And and over the last three, four, five years, we've tried to add really good, yeah. articulate, edu- you know, educated, intelligent voices and. Brit is one of those. So, yeah, no, and we have another. Great. We have another girl joining us in a couple of weeks that we'll right. introduce to the audience soon too. So, oh, wow. it's, it's really great umbrella to be a part of. Yep, awesome. impressive content, impressive people. Uh, Brittany, you've not, you and I have interacted just a few times, but I just wanted to say I've always appreciated your very good balance of mind and heart in the spiritual quest. Mm. Mm, I appreciate that, Phil. It balances very, very nicely. So mm. that matters. Awesome. Hey, I could best be described as, oh gosh, probably a yogic Christian or Christian yogi, whatever sounds best. Uh, I grew up Catholic, uh, went to Catholic schools my whole life, Uh, left the church at 17, that was 1967, 68, 
And uh, it just wasn't, it didn't make sense to me. It wasn't working for me. I spent two years literally um, investigating and experiencing every form of Christianity that was available to me. I'm, I'm talking about dozens and dozens. From about the age 20 onward, my whole life and profession was devoted to Christian religion and spirituality as I understood it, you know, along the years. Yeah. I served as a campus minister for 10 years, mostly at Auburn University and University of Georgia. That was followed by a career as a military chaplain for 21 years, and then I served eight years as a hospice chaplain. Sadly, my understanding of Jesus and what I would call true Christianity was limited by really traditional doctrines about Jesus that I think evolved away from the core of his true purpose and meaning very early on. In the late 90s, I suffered a serious accident, which plunged me into uh, a health crisis. And my um, long devoted spirituality and Christianity, frankly, collapsed, failed me, did not prove to be a source of stability or healing. And I spent about two years in chronic pain, anxiety, depression, just not knowing where to turn for help. My last ditch effort was to turn to meditation and meditative yoga which I began to practice faithfully three times a day. And uh, to my delight, it was very effective in stabilizing me and bringing about tremendous mental, emotional, physical, spiritual healing. In the process of that, I suddenly became aware that this inner work was not just about relaxation or pain management or stress reduction, but it, that it was as far as I was concerned at that point, the core of spiritual living and the core of the spiritual path. And so once that realization dawned, I, I really invested myself in serious, serious study of the, of the yoga tradition and the yoga tradition of meditation. I did branch out to study other meditative practices and traditions just to have it all in context. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was blessed. I was blessed to be able to study with uh, Deepak Chopra. He's the one that really got me into the yoga tradition. He helped refine my practice. Uh, later, I then had a 13-year discipleship with a gentleman named Roy Eugene Davis. Uh, Roy was the last living, direct guru disciple of the well-known uh, Yogananda, who wrote the autobiography of a yogi. And Roy was the founder of a place called the Center for Spiritual Awareness. So I had those two mentors to really ground me in the philosophy and practice of yoga. And we're not talking about stretching postures, <laughs> you know. We, we've separated that from a deep spiritual tradition for other benefits. But in any case, um, it was through, it was really through yoga teachings and meditation practice that I awakened. And then in that awakening, um, it was revealed to me the true nature, character, mission, message, and mediation of Jesus, which is, you know, would probably be best described as a mystical 
form of Christianity. So it was odd that I popped out of Christianity, got deeply rooted in yoga, and then uh, returned to incorporate that. And uh, you're aware, I wrote an article some years ago called The Yoga of Christ. And I wrote that article after this realization that there was, for me, near perfect harmony between what I had experienced in yoga and what I was experiencing in mystical Christianity. Mm. So from 2005 to 2014, I wrote articles. I traveled all over the West through the South, uh, teaching my yoga Christian blend of spiritual teaching and meditation practice. My uh, mother lived with us the last 17 years of her life and starting around 2014, she began to decline. So uh, I didn't travel anymore. I did online teaching from 2014 to 16. My mother passed in 17. And since then, I'm just uh, kind of devoted to my personal practice, my family, I've got my little Facebook page. We take care of our children and grandchildren and all the creatures that live in and out of the house. Uh, I still work with individuals typically online, either one-on-one or small groups. I don't do outreach. I don't do advertising. Uh, I just respond as people come to me, and there's just this kind of constant gentle flow of folks. So I still keep busy with teaching and working with folks, but at that much reduced level. Do you still have some of your classes online that you've posted in the past? You know, I what happened was um, they somehow got – lost the person that was doing the hosting for me didn't keep it up oh that's too bad so they disintegrated and fell apart well Um, that's a lesson in impermanence for all of us but that's very sad (laughs) that's very sad (laughs) i mourn i mourn impermanence that those are lost (laughs) so i've been encouraged to recreate them and there's a wonderful woman who does internet work that's offered her services for free so uh when i stop Uh, cleaning up after animals and feeding goats and stuff all get on it. I would love to see those come back online. (laughs) If I, if my vote means anything, I I vote for that to happen. I need, I need votes. I need encouragement. (laughs) We, uh, we talked about, you know, you're going to go into detail about seven practices that help us to do what I said, which is, to kind of raise our awareness about ourself, maybe our place yeah. in the universe, right? And the others around us and how they're connected and disconnected, which I think both things are true uh, from who we are. Yeah. And uh, and also just th- this big, beautiful universe that we live in and, and that we're a part of in maybe bigger ways than we, most of us even comprehend on a daily basis. And But I want to start off by asking like why, like I, I know why these things are important. I think Britt knows why these things are important. You obviously do because it's, it's what's interesting to you, but what, why this topic right now, what, what's on your mind and how did this kind of come forth? Well, my life purpose for some time now, 20 years or more has been to teach meditation as deep prayer uh, as a vehicle for inner awakening and, and, whatever you want to call it. My language is inner awakening and spiritual rebirth. Um, That practice for most, there's these few odd people that have these spontaneous awakenings. They're a handful. Uh, For most, this process requires quite serious devotion and discipline. And 
uh, so I've taught thousands. If you get it and dive right in, many struggle with it, but stick with it and finally get it and establish a fruitful practice. But there's many who give a good effort, but they stop. It either isn't making sense to them. It's not working for them. And they kind of uh, get discouraged and give up. Mm. In working with this latter group over the years, I have found that it's helpful if I can provide a practical, simpler, contemplative practice that can help them what is uh, referred to in yoga as atma darshan. It means to glimpse the soul, mm. to have a vision, a, a, a glimpse of, uh, of the deeper reality of God, of the soul, of, and so forth. Now, I, I do believe there's no substitute for the work of a consistent, you know, inner work, contemplative prayer, meditation, practice. They come in many forms, obviously. Um, but I've had good success with these, what I would call um, preparatory practices in some cases, to help people get a vision of what's of what's going on. So I'll give you an example. Um, we were on a family reunion. We have a family reunion every June. And our, we all stay in one place, our whole family. So our children, their spouses, the, all the grandchildren. And uh, for several years, we went to Kanab and we rented a big giant house there. My wife insists we have a service project every time we have a family reunion. She's wonderful. Anyway, we go down there to work at Best Friends. You know Best Friends um, Animal Sanctuary? Yeah, yeah, the animal shelter. Yeah. 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 So we go down there and have our family reunion and do work and then go play. Mm. Um, Well, anyway, my oldest daughter, um, well into her 40s, was feeling a little guilty because here she's the daughter of a meditation teacher. She tried to meditate. It wasn't working for her. And she's feeling guilty and like she's failing me in some way. And so during the retreat, a retreat, during the family reunion, I was always up at five doing my morning meditation. So she asked if she could get up with me. So we went up into this loft together and she finally confessed her sin that, you know, she had tried hard and it wasn't making sense and it didn't work for her. Mm. And um, so I said, well, let's do something else this week. Let's can the meditation And I decided to do a practice I'll share today called self-inquiry. And I had her do this practice of self-inquiry, and and we'll talk about it. But it's essentially asking, turning within, and asking questions to try to discern what it is about yourself that's temporary and passing and maybe not of that great of value and and is distinguished from that within you that is... um, of eternal worth, of eternal value, of of a deeper nature and reality. So anyway, we did that for the week. And then when she got home, she called me and she said, wow, I got it. She said, she even used this language, I got the glimpse. Mm -hmm. So something helped in that, something in that practice of of self-inquiry opened that little window for her so she could see what the practice of, you know, consistent meditation and contemplative prayer is about once she had that little vision do you see then the practice made sense it was easier to commit to the practice and then it became more fruitful so Mm. so what i wanted to share today was six or seven or eight 
things that I've used with people that have been helpful. People are different. You know, one thing helps a particular group and another thing others. So yeah, can I, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Can I can I ask one question, Phil, before we kind of dive into these? Um, a lot of the people that I work with as a spiritual director and uh, some portion of this audience are people for whom the word soul and God just do not resonate, right? Maybe religious trauma, sure. maybe just a belief system. In your opinion of working with so many people for so long, is there something missing if you do these kinds of practices with secular language, are you missing something that's really uh, what you consider to be essential? Or is it something where you can switch out words? So you may, for soul, you may, you may use consciousness or for God, you may use something like uh, the universal connection between all things or whatever that secular term is. Do you easily switch those out for people? Or do you feel like there's something essential missing when you do that? Well, that's a really intelligent, penetrating question. Um, Fortunately, again, I work with people that are drawn to me. Hmm. So the people that are drawn to me tend to relate to the language that I'm using. Uh, Occasionally, I get invited to places where that language isn't working. And I will use words like consciousness and essence and deeper reality and so forth. Um, For me, and this comes out even in the ancient, ancient yoga scriptures, um, who aren't envisioning God as a person up in the sky, right? Those scriptures still describe God or the deeper reality as both personal and impersonal. And for me, there's something about being able to experience, um, let's say, the deeper reality uh, or per- pure consciousness in, in both a personal and impersonal way. There seems to be a balance and a harmony there that makes the whole practice, um, I don't know, intimate, enjoyable. Um, I I was listening to a podcast by Rupert Spira a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you're familiar with Rupert. He's one of the worldwide main teachers of non-duality. And he normally talks in this kind of impersonal language that you're talking about. Mm hmm. And then all of a sudden he used this phrase, uh, impersonal, but intimate. And I had, you know, I had to put it on pause and jot it down because I knew I wanted to come back and capture that. So um, even though ultimate reality is in a sense impersonal, it is manifested in a very deeply personal way in us. It's manifesting in and through us and, uh, and we're persons. So um, for me, I, I like language that that uh, has that personal aspect. Yeah, mm. others don't. Others don't. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. I I, uh, I figure once people connect, their minds and hearts can be open to that deeper reality. Then they're they're going to be led or guided in a way that's you know going to nourish them deeply. So I I don't worry too much about. Um, once people get it, then, you know, I'm happy to let the bird fly, let them go on their own and Mm. whatever tradition they. Yeah. Language is, language is hard. You know, there's such a difference between in, in my work. I find myself really, um, separating kind of subjective and objective 
kind of, when I'm using language. So if someone says I'm feeling like I'm a part of the body of Christ, subjectively, I know what that feeling is. But right. I may use different language right. if I'm in an objective conversation right. about what's really going on here. And so the language just gets really tricky because subjective experience, whatever word that we've described for, for God or soul, we know what these feel like. But then when we're having objective discussions about the scientific nature of reality, you know, it, we can maybe get a little bit more strict with the language when we're trying to figure out what's going on here. But but uh, those two things kind of have to be held in tension just because the language around this is just always so hard. And maybe because people have various traumas or life history, certain language may disconnect them from the ultimate experience we're aiming for, and other language may walk them into that experience. And so, yeah, I can, I can certainly value the question and the, the perspective kind of on all sides of that. Yeah, I agree. And you want, and you, you know, you want to meet people's needs where they are, right? Yeah. You don't want to insist on a particular right. way or a particular language if it's not helpful at the time. Right. So let's, uh, let's jump into this first one and we've got other people. I'll just, I'll just say there are viewers who are already putting some questions up and I, I want to try to get through a chunk of this material anyway, before we begin to kind of go off into the weeds, I think on some of these and answer some tangential sure. questions sure. that are important to them. And I think important to the conversation, but Let's get kind of a chunk of this out first. Uh, yeah. Walk us through this first one. Yeah, let me I tell you, just everything I share assumes two things. Number one, mm -hmm. the, the truth of the perennial philosophy, which behind this world of form that we're living in, there's an infinite changeless reality. Okay, that's, a, that's assumed. Also that that same reality is at the core of our essence of being. That's part of who we are. We are a manifestation of that. And then the third thing in the perennial philosophy is the purpose of this life is to discover that truth, to discover that deeper reality, and then learn how to integrate it into the life we're in at the moment uh, in our mortal lives. So um, the second thing I assume is that um, there's essentially only two spiritual paths. There's the path of there's something wrong with you and you need to be changed or you need to change or you need to have a change of status by some divine act, some blend of grace and works, whatever, you know, denomination comes up with their formula to make you okay, right? To make you better or different or acceptable. That's one spiritual path. Many groups fall into that. The other spiritual path is the awakening path, which I promote, which assumes the truths of the perennial philosophy that the as in the essence of your being, there is uh, goodness, there is, there is the nature of the divine, and the spiritual path is about awakening to that, not changing substantively what you are, but bringing you into what you are. So all of these practices assume that, uh, that perspective. Yeah. So, all right. Oh, I can't resist this. One little, one little story, and we'll dive in. I'll go quick. Um, in 1959, I was nine years old. And um, I, was, I had, was in sleep, in bed asleep. We always slept in the dark in our family, so the room's completely dark. And somehow that one night, I reversed myself in the bed. So my head was where my feet were and vice versa. I woke up in the middle of the night uh, to go to the bathroom. And so I turned the way I would normally turn to get out of my bed. 
and I hit the wall. Well, all of a sudden this panic set in because there was supposed to be an opening there. And I kept moving and banging into the wall, uh, terrified. And so I turned back over. Of course, it's all dark in my room. I could just see faint images and you're nine years old. And you know, what comes into your mind? Well, I assumed I'd been kidnapped and taken to some strange place. And as I looked over, there was a chair and I could barely see, and there was stuff there and the stuff in the dark, it looked like there was a person sitting in that chair watching me. So I was terrified, horrified. And so I waited and the person didn't seem to move. And I thought, well, maybe he's asleep. I got to escape. So I looked around the room, looked around the room, and I could see there were blinds over a window. And one of the blinds was just the teeniest sliver of light coming in. So I moved very, very slowly. I slipped off the bed. I crawled on the floor very carefully. I moved up to that blind to get a clue where I might be and how I might escape. And as I lifted that one, that one blind, I looked out. Lo and behold, I saw the tree in our front yard, right? <laughs> and I thought, wait, that doesn't make any sense. So that one little sliver of light came in the room. I turn and look, and all of a sudden I realized the chair was my chair and the guy was clothes piled on top of it. And I was suddenly reoriented to my place, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. One little sliver of light was all it took to create that reorientation. And that's what we're looking for here, do you see, in these practices. We're looking for a sliver of insight, of perception, of light that's going to orient our lives to that which is true and, and ultimately meaningful. So let's dive in. Um, I've got a couple of here. I'm calling these practices to awaken awareness of a deeper or stable presence or self in yourself and in others. So the first one is very simple. You stand in front of a mirror and you gaze at your own face and you gaze, stare into your own eyes. Now, there's something about faces and eyes. You know, I mean, I don't know who came up with that expression of eyes being windows to the soul, but somebody picked up on something. There's magic in the eyes. And you can gaze at your face and then gaze into your eyes open, open. And, um, you know, you can ask the Zen question if you want. You know, one of the first Zen koans is, you know, what was my original face? So, you know, you can ask that question. I have to admit I was stupid enough when I first asked that question in the koan to try to imagine a different face that I had maybe before I got here. Of course, that it's a bit simplistic and absurd. Um, but as you gaze into your eyes, you can start to have an experience of presence, of something present with you or within you that's beyond what you're normally thinking and experiencing. So, you know, in that koan, the original face is no face. No face. Your original face is no face. It was a state of being in existence deeper than this face. And, and that face is 
more really you than the face you're looking at, which is good news for me. <laughs> uh, I remember I was staring in the mirror one morning. I didn't realize my mother had walked up behind me. And as I was staring, um, I was looking at all the changes and the wrinkles. I'm an old dude now. And, and I, I can remember, I said out loud, I said, gosh, who is this? <laughs> Who's this old man? I said, I still feel like I'm 17. Yeah. And my mother standing behind me, who was probably 82 at the time, just said, yeah, I feel the same way. And then she walked out. There's, there's something, when you do that gazing into your eyes, you, you start to become aware of something in you that hasn't aged. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm. Presence. There's a, something that's always been there. And you can um, start to discern that. Mm. It's a little window. Another thing that you can do that's similar to this, we did this at the Chopra Center. Um, you can do it with people you know. It seems to work better with people you don't know. When you know people, there's, oh, you know, you, you laugh and you got too much in your mind about who the person is. But with a stranger and you don't know anything about them, he would have us get together in twos and gaze into each other's eyes as we ask the question, what's the difference between you and me? I'm mm -hmm. telling you, I, I expected, it sounded so simple. That's powerful. I this goofy thing up. I'm staring into this stranger's eyes. They're staring into my eyes and I'm asking the question, what's the difference between you and me? And suddenly there was this profound awareness of a presence that we both shared. There was a, uh, a common self, a common presence, whatever language you want to use, um, that was quite amazing to me. Again, it, it awoke in me through the interaction with this other person. And it was a little weird throughout the whole, I mean, it was a week long event, you know, and throughout the whole week at mealtimes and stuff, uh, it was hard not to associate that experience with that other, with that other person. But this, yeah, yeah this eye gazing, you're either yourself in a mirror or into the eyes of another person asking that question can be one of those windows into the perception of presence beyond. I, I, the yeah. Experience. I, I love it. Um, I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking into my own eyes other than like, as you point out, you're brushing your teeth or combing your hair or whatever. And you're, you do look at your eyes and you're measuring kind of what about you is different. What about you the same? Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? But I've done some exercises where I've spent time looking into other people's eyes, both strangers oh. and, you know, people I care about my wife, for instance, in marriage therapy, we've, we've at times sat and stared into each other's eyes, but you're right. It's much more powerful, I think, with a stranger for two reasons on both sides of the coin. One is that you sit with at least your assumptions about their life and what makes them different. And also that realization that you're pointing us to, which is they're just me under a completely different set of circumstances, dispositions, life experiences, uh, traumas and joys and and, and the reality of what makes another human being not you is something beyond the thing that is permanent, right? Like there's, oh yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so fascinating practice. I think both looking into your own, cause I'm actually now interested to do that. Um, but also at least some anecdotal evidence that there is some life changing awareness, things that can come up in staring into someone else's eyes. Yeah. The, the, um, now with, you know, you don't want to get beat up on the street, so it's hard to engage a stranger say, Hey, let's gaze into each other's eyes. So what I would have to do is, uh, like when I held meditation groups, um, I could set that up as an exercise, right? It was natural and not freaky. So t- typically that second one takes somebody to set that sort of situation up. Yeah. I would do that, you know, for people coming to my group so they, they could have that experience. Um, a second one that we also did at Chopra um, was what, uh, it's called a life review. And what you do is you go back as far as you can remember, you know, your first memories. Uh, the ladies seem to be able to get back farther than the men, whatever that means. But you go back as far as you can and then far enough where you can get a sense for what you were like at three or four years old, whatever that is. Mm. And you take time you know, all these things have to be done, not being pressed by time, contemplatively, open mind, open heart. And you just look at yourself. I'm just going to pick four or five years old. Um, I think I had to go to five. And, and you know, what your body was like, what your life circumstances were like, um, how you saw things, how you interpreted things, what life was like for you, what it meant to you. Um you know, how you thought and felt about things going on in your life. So you try to capture the experience of self as best as you can at a point in time that you can remember with some clarity. And then you start moving. And, um, you know, you you go to another point. I mean, you can go in, depending on how old you are, you can go in five-year increments. Um, You know, I went from five to ten 10 to 12, 15. I mean, those teenage years are kind of important. But you do the same thing at each stage. So I, I, I got went to 15, body, life circumstances, how I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, desiring, fearing, uh, what life means, what I'm reflecting on. I, the idea is just capture yourself as best as you can at 15, 20, 25 um, you, you just go through those, you know, you, you, you'll feel kind of intuitively drawn to particular areas where you do that assessment. You, and you just work, you just work right up to present day. The idea then is to sit back and reflect on what's been experienced. And two things should come into your awareness. Number one, you have changed a ton. Right. The five year old Phil is very different from the 70 year old Phil and every stage in between. So my life has been a succession of changes. Physical, mental, emotional, life circumstances, ways of interpreting and seeing life and so forth. I mean, it's just it's an overwhelming cascade of of change after change. But as you sit there reflecting you should also notice 
as you think about all those changes, at each of those steps, there's awareness of a presence that has always been there that hasn't changed. It felt the same at five as it did at 65. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You can sense a persistent, consistent presence. And if you stay with it long enough, you can suddenly realize that whatever that presence is and whatever that presence is that has always been with me, it's actually more me, more real and more me than all of these changes that have occurred. It's the awareness of what is aware or what, right? Yeah, very nice stated. Yeah. When Uh, I look back, it's like, it's the awareness of the person who was aware or that which was aware. That's how I rephrase that. So again, my language, we're we're talking about spirit Mm -hmm. and the primary quality of spirit is awareness. Mm. And so Yes, we, that could be as good or the best way to describe that presence. It's a presence of awareness that's always been present. Your ability to comprehend it, to be aware of it, to express it, of course, evolves and changes through life. But the idea is to capture this consciously, root yourself in it more deeply because it does reflect a deeper reality than all the changes in our lives, and then integrate it into our mortal lives, which are going to continue to change and change and change. Uh, It's a tremendous source of stability. I think Mm. that'd be really powerful for someone who really is wanting to get back in touch with their inner child. I work with so many women who I I work with a woman just this week who um, kind of pushed down her inner child and inner voice for so long since she was a child because of the patriarchy religion she was raised in that she really didn't know her. She didn't know what she had to say. She didn't know who her inner child was. So I think that would be a really powerful exercise to do um, with inner child work. I find that really beautiful pairing. Yeah. And you can even do it backwards. So Mm -hmm. we did a, we also did an exercise that he called life regression and I don't know how serious he was about this. I know he believed in reincarnation at some way, in some way, but he had a group of us and he took us from present day in five and 10 year increments back through our lives. And then he he would get us to birth and then try to get us past birth, right? To try to remember a, a former life. And I was pretty curious about how this was going to work what happened to me was a little odd and it relates to what you said. I'm going back. I'm going back. I'm going back. I'm going back. Well, I got to age seven and stopped and age seven was, I was seven years old when my father died at age 37. And throughout my entire life, I had believed that because I had little memory of it and I had little emotive there seemed to be a little emotive impact of losing my father at age seven that um, I just somehow coped with it well as a child. So when we got back to age seven, suddenly I'm in the funeral home. I'm walking up to the casket. I'm looking in fearful the way a child would be and trying to decide whether to touch or not touch. And then 
I mean, I'm reliving this. I, I, mm. I, I, I'm really believing my mind has recaptured this and is now displaying it with accuracy. And, and I could see the adults there and I could hear the adults talking about me, right. Trying to mm. figure out, can they help me in some way? And what was I, and I suddenly stepped back and in my mind, my mind is saying, I've lost my father. Mm. There was so much emotion. I almost had to leave the room. It was, you know, mm. it was time to weep, really. I had no idea, no idea how that had impacted me. It had been so traumatic, probably, that I had layered it over as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And then had this false impression that I had somehow coped with it well. <laughs> and after that realization, I then went through my life and saw the many ways that I tried to compensate for that loss, right? Mm. So you um, put it in the kind of subconscious, you put it off to the side, but it was still driving behavior because you hadn't right? dealt with so, it. That's mm. that's so interesting. I, you know, this is more of a psychological experience than a spiritual experience, but all this mm-hmm. stuff comes together, right? Yeah, that's really beautiful. When it starts going into past lives, that's where people like, that's where Deepak gets in trouble with people. Like <laughs> Sam, Sam Harris is like, no, 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 Deepak. You can't do that. <laughs> you just to went too far. You know, sometimes <laughs> Sam Harris and Deepak will get together and then, or with other kind of more scientific meditators right. and Deepak will get into a little bit of trouble or he'll yeah. get some pushback. But, but that experience going back to, to yeah. your child, that, that is really profound. Thank you. Well, for I have sharing. to tell you this. So when the thing was over and I, I really loved him and he helped me so much. And, but, uh, Anyway, he asked people if they wanted to, to share what their experience was. And it was a circus. It, um, one lady was Cleopatra and mm-hmm. another guy was a, a slave who was at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And Way was, too many people are famous. Maybe <laughs> too many people, when they go into a past life, they're a, you know, a war hero or, yeah. you know. There were no slaves. There were no bricklayers in the pits of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My BS meter goes up a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. I was like, I, I thought this is nutty. There's just no, <laughs> this is fantasy. This is creative imagination, whatever this is, you know, it's, it's uh, not reality. And my, my second teacher guru, Roy Davis, he hated that stuff. If you came to him with that kind of stuff, he'd stand you in the corner for a week. He just wouldn't mm. tolerate it. So. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, this so life review, whichever way you do it, mm. you can have this experience of self as change, self as non-change. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love it. And and again, I'll just emphasize, I, I also can find value as long as we stay in this life and don't <laughs> climb into another, but uh, no, it gets into craziness. It gets into yeah. fantasy and, and imagination and it's not very helpful. No, not yeah. at all. Uh, it is interesting. Maybe there is something there in terms of if we, if we understand that maybe that's fiction, if we go beyond this life and to recognize maybe what kind of personalities people are drawn to think they were, oh. because I think people pick out the person they think they were with at least some sort of subconscious intention. Right. Sure. Um, so that I think is interesting. Yeah, that'd be uh, a good psychological exercise. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have to get a room of a thousand people and see who they were. 
Mm-hmm. All right, take us to the third one. So this is a practice to awaken awareness of an expanded sense of self beyond time and space. Um, there's several ways to do this. My preference is the sky gazing. This is fabulous. Um, you don't need 20 years of meditation to have a very, very profound experience if you know what's going on. So the idea is you find a comfortable place, feels good, your backyard, a park, wherever. It's, it's a dark night. There's not a lot of light distracting from the darkness of the sky. And um, you can stand or lay on your back or whatever, but you gaze into space. Now, most people have done this throughout their lives one or more times, just at random on a camp out or wherever. But you start gazing into space. And at some point, if, you, if you're doing it long enough, maybe your mind is helping or not, you, you might at some point just have a perception of the vastness, the infinite vastness of space, or your mind might start doing the, wow, those planets are millions and billions of light years away. Wow. And you, you, know, you keep extending with your mind. And then you get to this, well, wait a minute, there's no wall out there, but wait, if there's no wall out there, how is that possible? You know, you start... However you do it, mind or no mind, you you start to have this perception of infinite space. Now, most people have one of two reactions. For most, for many, not most, um, fear starts to settle in. Um, There's something discomforting and very uncomfortable about what you're experiencing some people become feel so teeny or so meaningless or so afraid that they'll immediately break that off and then they'll run around and look for something to touch or something heavy to pick up or they, they want to reground themselves, right, and get back to what's familiar and what's, with what's comfortable. And um, what's happening there is – You know, we identify with our very limited, whatever you want to call it, ego self, ego mind self. You know, we're we're, our identities are our physical and mental structures that we maintain, and they they're impermanent, so they're subject to to change. And now you're staring into this infinite space. Well, infinite space interacting with your finite perception of self is very scary because it can um, create a sense of extinction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You can feel like, oops, that, that's the fear that I'm going to be made extinct. Because deep, deep, deep inside, we realize this little Phil guy that's walking around and, you know, snacking on this, that, or the other, uh, is impermanent, Right. And so that, that face-to-face with the eternity can be very scary. Most people break off uh, and don't get caught doing it again. There are a few people who hang in there and get past that and have this kind of experience of awe. And they somehow feel strangely comfortable and strangely at home. And they just kind of rest in that, not not really knowing what it means. And then if they're with somebody, they might start to share, right? 
and mm. talk about it. Mm. In the sharing and talking about it, you tend to lose it, right? And then it's just a conversation. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> no, no, it's just that, I, that, that is an experience that I've had numerous times. Um, let's see how far I want to go with this. So, yeah. on, and because we might get to this later, hopefully we'll have a little bit of this conversation, but there's been times where I've used drugs and uh, been in a group setting, uh, either a small group laying on a trampoline with my wife and staring up at the stars oh. or with a group where we've laid on a trampoline or on the ground on a blanket and, and stared up at the stars for an hour. And there's so many things that come to mind. You're, you're right. Like these conversations ensue, which is I'm completely an accident and alone and I'm a miracle and connected to everything, right? Like it's, it's those far extremes of this juxtaposed irony of something that feels both, both sides, both feel true. And yet they seem to contradict each other. Right. right. Um, it is an amazing space to sit with. And, and I've had that experience sober too, but right. the ones with drugs have been, there's been more there to it. Right. If that makes sense. Anyway, continue. So, so here's what I teach people to take this out of the realm of fear and to take it out of the realm of uh, what the heck's going on here, right? What do I do with this? So here's the really the insight. You would be incapable of having the perception of infinity if there wasn't something in you that was like that. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I don't know if I can fully go there. Okay. So, so keep keep talking. Yeah, keep, keep so talking. The, the teaching here is to even be able to have the perception of infinity, infinite space, something in me like that has to interact with that, do you see? And it can only interact with that through likeness. So here's a quote from Plotinus. Um, I forget when he lived, the 200s, late 200s, whenever. Uh, fabulous, one of my favorite ancient philosophers. Um, we'll have to talk later, Bill, about whether he was taking drugs or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he said this, you can only comprehend the infinite by a faculty superior to reason. By entering into a state in which, you're which you are your finite self no longer, in which the divine essence is communicated to you. It is the liberation of your mind from its finite consciousness, and then he ends it, like can only apprehend like. So the the the... I, I try to convince people, look, you don't need 20 years of meditation to have an experience of the eternal nature of your own being, your essence of being. You gaze into the sky, you have the experience of infinity, you realize something in you is like that or you couldn't be perceiving this. What happens is we project that experience into space and don't realize that we can now, once that's perceived, we can now turn our attention back within ourselves, see, and have an, a little bit of an awakening there when you suddenly realize that, that what I'm perceiving out there is also true in here, right? So it's that famous ancient saying, what's 
Oh gosh, I've already lost it. Um, as is the macrocosm, so is the microcosm, see? So you're using this more tangible, lack of a better word, experience of space to then turn that awareness within, experience it within yourself. Yeah, and, and I'll blend maybe the two of you because I'm I'm with Britt. If, and again, we're all different. I don't mean that my ground is right and your ground's wrong. I just the, the way I look at the world is whatever I am, whatever that consciousness is, that consciousness will come to an end when this life ends for me. And and the person, me, um, who is aware, that awareness will close off. I'll, I'll take a dirt nap and that'll be it. But on, on your behalf, I also say that when I do this practice, I realize that, and I'll use the marker of 13.2. Somebody corrected me last week and said, Bill, it's 13.7 billion years. Like as if 0.5 billion years in the whole scope of the conversation makes a difference, right? But let's say 13.7, just so he's he's happy. 13.7 billion years ago, something happened. And, and my logic says there was something before that too. Sure. Otherwise, something can't happen sure. for nothing, right? So 13.2 billion years ago, this explosion somewhere occurs. And then everything is the creative energy of that moment that never left. It, it continued on and it expanded and spread out. It changed its rate of speed. It started and ended certain processes all along the way. And in those processes, uh, an earth formed and there was algae in the ocean and at some point there was, you know, two-legged and four-legged creatures. And at some point there was me. And that I am a product of that creative energy from that 13 point something billion years ago. And if I allow myself to think about it, that creative energy that is me and is everything else will be something else in another 13.7 billion years. And in that kind of framing, I can recognize that I, I am eternal. I am forever. I am everlasting. Even if the guy known as Bill comes to a close after whatever life his life is. Yeah. Um, boy, these could, this could lead into discussions way beyond our scope here. Um, I, you know, in the yoga tradition, it's very common to use this ocean and wave imagery mm -hmm. Right. So the ocean representing ultimate reality and then it, it by its movements, right, evolution, evolutionary movements, let's say, it kicks up these waves and, and the waves are the individuals. It's the individual expression of the ocean. But then the wave always goes back into the ocean. Right. So when I was first taught that, again, I'm terrified. Right. Because to my ego self, that means extinction. And what's more fearful than personal extinction. Right. So I went for many years um, with this in the back of my mind, having to honor it because it kind of came out of my yoga tradition teaching, but being afraid of it at the same time. And um, I, I don't remember the morning. I just remember the day. There was a day when at the end of my meditation, I kind of awoke as the ocean, not the wave. And when that happened, uh, I started laughing uproariously because I was terrified of losing little Phil, right? The little bald guy who likes the Florida Gators and likes strawberry ice cream, but he can't eat anymore because of his blood sugar. And 
you know, all my little personal little fill problems. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're such a big deal in my day-to-day life. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed because I thought, why am I afraid of losing this little fill when, when who and what I am in essence is this, do you see? The all. And uh, I got snapped out of that state uh, by a noise and then a sight and then my mind started up and then it was, I got to go to work and eat breakfast, you know. <laughs> Uh, back into Little Phil. But the fear of that left me. Um, later, and I think we have to go to these extremes to ultimately get balance. Later, um, as I was rejoicing in the fact that I felt stability and security as being the ocean, let's say, um, as I was having that experience in meditation one morning, um, Phil was still there. I, I sensed a distinction. I'm going to bring this up in, the, in another one here, but it was like, well, wait a minute. I didn't go away. And I didn't go away because my particular expression came to this realization of pure existence being consciousness in a unique way. You, you talked about uniqueness earlier, you know. Um I've, I've experienced life in a way that no other human being has, even though there's trillions of human beings. There is a uniqueness to what I've perceived and experienced, and that uniqueness doesn't go away. So um, I get my butt kicked quite a bit by, um, you know, people that are into monism and certainly Buddhists. But I really believe the the ultimate mystery, the ultimate revelation is this union of the infinite with the finite, you know, the personal and the impersonal, right? The universal and the particular. There is a point of paradox. And of course, paradox means it's a cross. It's a point of paradox is where two contradictory things become one. They're both true at the same time at that one special point, you see. And so I am a proponent of universality, my identity as an unchanging universal consciousness, but at the same time, uh, an individual, an individualized aspect of that that doesn't go away. Mm. And later when we talk about brain, I do want to talk about consciousness when the brain dies. So I'll save that. Yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Any thoughts there, Britt, or we'll jump into number four? Yeah, can I just take a second and translate that into my heathen secular ways? <laughs> Please, because yeah, I, I want to build a bridge here too, so people yeah. don't get. Yeah, um, I think I think where I like have it's almost like an allergy, and it's it speaks more to my own religious trauma than about ultimate reality. So this is I'm admitting this is my own perception, but. Uh, you know, in in secular spaces, sometimes this is called you know that. All that is, is consciousness, which is fundamentally mysterious, and objects and consciousness. And you can actually kind of step back from all the objects that are coming into awareness and actually sit in pure awareness, sit in consciousness. And I've had many, you know, uh, big experiences with that. You know, I've done headless kind of meditations where you actually kind of feel like you don't have a head. You know, it's just awareness. Like, I'm not a person behind my eyes. Right. 
And then, you know, little experiences too, where you can just settle into what you're talking about, the wave, just kind of set, settle into consciousness and just watch the objects and consciousness come up, whether that's sensation or feeling or all these things. I think where I have like a hesitation is that I see in religious traditions, because all religious traditions will dive into some aspect of what we call the ocean, right? Settling into some kind of experience. But then what happens is, you know, you settle into awareness or consciousness, and then there's a therefore. Therefore, I am eternal. Therefore, God exists, and he's like this. Therefore, uh, I'm a part of the body of Christ, and therefore Christ must have died for whatever the therefore is. Sure. And so I think, I think what helped me is I kept kind of chasing for ultimate reality. And eventually I just kind of had to realize that I wasn't spiritually progressing. And I just kind of had to step back and say, I'm just going to experience whatever this is consciousness and objects and consciousness without having to do a therefore about ultimate reality, because we're just really bad at that game. Like historically, oh, yeah. the therefore, we're just bad at it. And eventually I just kind of had to step back and say, therefore nothing, it's just is. <laughs> and I think that's just my own personal spiritual journey, but that's kind of where I go with that is, is I can validate the experience, but I'm very sensitive to any therefores about ultimate reality. That yeah, makes but, sense. Yeah, but yeah. I think the gist of what you're saying, Phil, in terms of discovering that you are interconnected to the processes that brought you here over a long expanse of time, essentially forever, and will continue in the sense that you're part of that creative energy into essentially forever going forward. Um, and I think that awareness is a huge resource to people to show up differently in life once they learn it. Yeah. And um you know, most that are into this don't agree with me. I mean, most take this to the logical extreme of uh, it makes no sense for individuality to persist. Yeah, I, I'm just sharing my experience that I went fully there. I was willing to give up little Phil, right? And I had tremendous rejoicing in experiencing myself as unbounded uh, awareness and being. And I was quite surprised. And I, you know, for me, this is the lose your life that you might find it, right? Um, for me, it was a return. And I don't believe I could have experienced what I now call as genuine individuality if I hadn't experienced the loss of individuality. So there was the the death and rebirth in that understanding for me. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Hey, um, let's I'm going to have to take more mushrooms, I think. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm open to experiencing that and then once you've experienced something that you haven't experienced before, you have little choice but to change how you frame the world around you. Right. You can just see you can just see Phil's face go like, oh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I gotta do we something to come it. up with that. Yeah, no, no, no. But I get it. Let's let's oh, continue makes, on. It makes perfect sense. I, yeah. Um I'm gonna let me skip to what I've got on here is five for, for a minute, just because it tails into this. And then I'll go back to the other one. <clears throat> um, something I find that helps people a lot is what I call the I, me contemplation. So I'll have people sit. Um, and <clears throat> play with these words, I and me. 
And the me, uh, the neat thing about me is when you say me, there comes a flood of all the things you identify with and your understanding and your sense of self as you are uh, most of the time, how you experience yourself. Um, so I had people immerse themselves in the me and then I have them pause and then have them reflect on I and to look behind the me for a, to see if there is an I. In other words, me is clear. I know who me is. Is there a deeper I behind the me? And so the reflection here is, here's me up front. I know this quite well. Is there an I behind this? Is there a, an I deeper in awareness? And of course, that I, again, is that presence that's always been through us that we talked about like during the life review. Uh, this works quite well for some folks. Me, I. And then you settle into the presence of I and reflect on I. And again, the idea is for a person to have a sense of that within them that is not changing. Do you see? The stability of presence, the stability of being, the present, the stability of awareness, consciousness, and I might even toss in soul. Um, so uh, that's a helpful little practice for some. I really, let me tell you what I like about that one. I really like how it's, you're still kind of, by working with both, you're still um, holding both of those because something I found with women who are doing you know, they'll dive into some meditation where you really just dissolve the ego. There's sometimes, not always, but there are some times where that can be psychologically unhelpful, right? Yes. Psychologically damaging, especially if you are the kind of woman who, um, due to however you were raised in religion, really has never had a sense of ego, Right. Because if you were raised to say your value is in the service you give to others. Right. Then you really don't have a, a sense of me or my needs or my boundaries or my voice. Right. And so some of these ego dissolving things can be actually can be helpful for men who are leaving on a business trip and going to go meditate for three days. But not helpful maybe for women who have never who don't even know what their inner voice or what their me or I really is because they've kind of suppressed that. And so I really like that practice because it's not a dissolving of the ego. It's just kind of an awareness of, of noticing, right. And holding both of those, which I think is a lot more psychologically helpful for those people for whom ego dissolving is really not what they need at that time. Yeah. Boy, that's a valuable reflection. So um, what I like about that is you can ease into the I, still not lose your anchor in me. Uh, Ken Wilber pointed out, oh gosh, a long time ago, that for people who don't have a healthy ego formation, to do things that move you in the direction of transcending ego can be quite um, um, disturbing, if not dangerous, psychologically. So his recommendation for people like that was to maybe do some therapeutic work, um, ego work. I, I mean, you want a healthy ego to transcend, not a damaged ego, right? Yeah, I remember, um, and this is personal to me too, when I, after 
I had my first child, I had some significant depression and the kind of depression that I had was a dissociative kind of depression where I, depression where I w- really wasn't fully there, which is really common for women after they have children to have some kind of depression and feel like they're not fully yeah. present. So someone says, you know, oh, you know, you should go meditate, you know, to just calm down your stress and anxiety. And so I try it and I do this kind of dissolving ego thing but it was so damaging for where I was psychologically that it took me about four or five days to be like, to come back to the world, which was not what I needed at the time. Like, like someone asked, you know, do you want, do you want this for breakfast? And I could, I wasn't even Brittany who knew what I wanted for breakfast. Like there was no concept of Brittany anymore. And that was, um, not helpful, but I didn't know that, you know, they just, you know, I was just trying to find some, something to help at that time, but it's a really good thing to be aware of, uh, which is really like why I like how you framed that practice. That just seems like a really healthy way to do that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. That's that balance. I like in you, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because I don't exactly get it in my mind. When I think of me and I, I, those are interchangeable. And so I, I, maybe I'm missing what it is I'm trying to get at. And so could you just for maybe anybody else in the audience who's going like, hey, look, me, I, same word, essentially. What, what is it when, when I think about the me, I'm thinking about just that surface level who I am, right? And, and, but when I look for I, am I, am I trying to look for something else, right? Something else that's not me. Yeah, it's not look Now, again, one of the, you know, these exercises resonate different with different people. So some, for some, it makes sense for some, it doesn't, but it's not that you're looking for something in particular. It's, it's more becoming, see, if you, once you start looking for something, you objectify it. Once something is made into an object, it, it is not going to be perceived as part of the deeper reality. So the idea is to try to, it's more rather than looking for something, being aware of the presence of an I deeper than the me. Um, If those words don't distinguish well, then it's not going to be a great exercise for you, but um, it's better um, to move back with open awareness, seeing if there isn't something deeper than this me with ice cream and blood sugar and whatever else is going on. And his favorite football team getting beaten yeah. badly. Um, <laughs> now there's depression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know my team. It is. <laughs> oh, you just you're just a masochist with your team, Bill. I mean, you must, you must love to suffer with that. Hey, team. we have a we have a mantra. We have a mantra. It's called "There's always next year." She's turning okay. the knife. Okay, <laughs> uh, uh, right. let's uh, let's go to the next one. Um, this is the self-inquiry practice I taught my daughter. Uh, it's a fabulous spiritual practice. It's been around for thousands of years. Um, Catholic mystics called it the via negativa, the negative way. Um, I'm pretty certain that this developed because sages, early sages sensed there was a deeper reality and with their minds were trying to figure it out. And they came to a point where they realized um, there's something here that I can't conceptualize. They, they could feel the limitation of thought in that sense. And so one of those smart guys or gals decided, um, wait a minute, let's go the other way. 
instead of trying to positively grasp and understand what that is, right, that out there, um, let's start taking away everything we know that it can't be and see what's left. So that's essentially the, the negative way. Um, so the way this is classically done, or at least the way I do it, um, is you, you know, you take, this is about a 30 minute exercise. So you, you, comfortable place, not disturbed, a bit reflective, inner, uh, inward turned. And you start asking uh, the question, who am I? Or uh, my teacher, Roy, preferred, what am I? Because who some, sometimes dumps a lot of who baggage on you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, some people are uncomfortable with the impersonal what. So whichever resonates with you, who am I or what am I? So you ask that question reflectively, and then you start the subtracting. So who am I? Am I the body? And you start reflecting on that. Am I this body? Well, pretty closely associated with this body, pretty closely identified with this body. But wait a minute. There was a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a 20-year-old and that glorious 28-year-old body. And, uh, and now there's this 71-year-old body. Well, which one is it? Do you see what, mm -hmm. right? There's something, I'm, I'm obviously not just the body because it changes dramatically over many years. So whatever I am, and the body is, you know, a part of what's going on here. Whatever I am, clearly, in essence, I'm not the body because of all this change that's taking place. If I can interrupt just for a second, I mean, um, I've been through this exercise as well. I mean, you can do the whole brain in a vat. If you just suddenly were just a brain in a vat, you still you still would in your head go, I'm still me, right? Like, and, and, and the exercise that I've heard is if you, you know, you cut off your arm, are you still you? And if I cut off both your legs, are you still you? Right. And there becomes a realization, as you're pointing out, that your body is a part of who you are right now, but it isn't you. You can take it away and you're still there. Right. And if you if you do feel diminished by losing an arm, so that's a psychological issue, right? That's an emotional yeah. issue. It's not. Yeah, because only only you discovering that you lost the arm makes you then get lost in being less than in other words if you're covered up with a blanket you don't know that your arm is missing yet and i ask you the question you say you're still all there it's only the recognition that your arm's been removed that causes your mm. brain to lose its train of thought and now go uh-oh i'm less than but you weren't less than when you didn't know it right mm. yeah so you move from body to thought so so who am i am i the body reflect 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 okay whatever i am the body doesn't encapsulate who and what i am so am I my thoughts? Well, we really identify with our thought patterns. As a matter of fact, our thought patterns pretty much drive us and drive our sense of self. So am I my thinking, my thoughts? Well, you know, you don't have to have too much brain power to realize that thoughts, all thoughts come and go. Every thought has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's here one minute. It's there the next, right? It's gone. Some people obsess, you know, they think obsessively. I love strawberry ice cream. And you might obsess over that thought for two weeks, but sooner or later, it's, you know, it's going to end. And even in the cycling of it, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So thinking comes and goes. 
I'm now observing thoughts. Let's be a Buddhist for a minute. Now let's just be mindful and observe thoughts for a minute. Okay. Well, gosh, I can watch them come and go. Well, if I can observe them coming and going, I'm not it. You see, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the main mm. philosophical tenets of yoga is if you can observe it. You're not it. So mm. I can clearly observe thoughts. Um, Alan Watts used to say, uh, you know, I, I can't remember. We have 50 or 60,000 thoughts a day that are playing off of each other and cycling and one stimulating another and others coming together to create a sense of thing. And so much activity goes on up there. We really believe there's some kind of little guy in there that's alive. But um, what he would do is he, you know, he taught on a houseboat a lot in the San Francisco Bay in the evening and he smoked and he would get his cigarette butt really going. And then he'd take that cigarette and start moving it really fast. And then he would ask people what they saw. And he said, oh, I see a circle of fire, right? And then he would slow it down and stop. And he says, was there ever a circle of fire? You see, well, it looked like a circle of fire. There was no circle of fire. It was just a pinpoint of light moving so fast, moving faster than the, the reflection on the retina. How would you say this? Your, your retina reflects light for so many seconds or, you know, parts of a yeah, second. Yeah, there's more, there's more frames happening than your eyes can pick up on. Perfect. Yeah. So it's an illusion that there's a circle of light. It's just the movement that causes that. And his lesson was we have all of this fat, very fast movement of thought that gives the illusion that there's a person in our thoughts. Mm. Well, again, um, thoughts come and go. I'm still here. I can observe them. I can't be my thoughts. So now we've eliminated body and thoughts. Well, you can go on to emotions, which in most cases, um, you know, if it's not something instinctive, uh, most of our emotions are reflections of thought patterns. Um, and all of us have been mad one second because we've misunderstood something. And then when you understand it, you're not mad anymore, right? Emotions are very fickle. Uh, they come and they go the way thoughts do. So very careful. Who am I? Am I my body? No. Who am I? Am I my thinking and thoughts? Reflect, reflect. No. Who am I? Am I my emotions? And, and this is just the way it goes. Fears, needs, desires, life circumstances, uh, personality characteristics. Um, I have a certain laugh. I, I um, uh, had an old, because my father died young, I had a couple of surrogate fathers in between. And there's this one man that kind of took me under my his wing career-wise and uh, did a lot of wonderful things for me. And I was playing foosball with a friend of mine at the University of Florida uh, rec center and we're playing foosball and all of a sudden I started laughing. He goes, he goes, that's weird. You're laughing like Jim, you know? And it was obvious that what had happened, I love this man so much. Somehow I had picked up his laugh and I'm now laughing like him because I want him to be a part of me. Right. My friend is going, that's weird. Well, is it my laugh or his laugh? Right. We pick up things. Our personality picks up things as we go along. So even our personality mm -hmm. characteristics, you know, our, our hitchhikers. So the idea is to go through this list. Who am I? Reflect. I'm not this. You subtract, 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 subtract. And 
what you could, should experience, should is a tough word. Um, what's possible to be experienced at the end is, well, wait a minute. If you subtract, there's supposed to be less, right? If I've taken all these things away from myself, I should be less. But the experience is the more you take away, the more you start to feel more substantive and present. Mm. That's the magic of this of this um, practice of self-inquiry. I take these things away. Well, wait a minute. Not only am I here, I'm feeling myself here more substantively than I ever had before. What is that, you see? What is that? Bill, you're muted. Sorry, I took this as a religions course in college. Um, I was a sophomore uh, for Bowling Green State in Bowling Green State University, and I took a world religions class. And when we got to the Buddhism section, I think it was, is where they they did this practice. And the conclusion is you're just the observer. You're just the person observing. And it's not just observing with your sight, because if you're blind, you're you're still not less than what you were, right? And so it's whatever sense senses you have access to. It's your taking in the world as it's unfolding right in front of you. Um, and, and I'll tell you this, the, this exercise we did when I was you know, 19 years old, 18 or 19 years old, um, was profound because it stuck with me. Anytime I got anywhere close to this territory, that, that exercise came to my remembrance and I, it was profound, the recognition that I was none of these things. Right. And see, for my daughter, she caught that glimpse of that. And then she realized, oh, this meditation practice is about discovering that, holding awareness of that, finding my genuine self in that, and then living out of that, you see, living out Mm -hmm. of the genuine self, not the personality and life circumstances and fears and desires and needs and so forth. That's a powerful, it seems like a small shift, but it's such a powerful shift. Just the difference between I am angry and I'm feeling sensations of anger are two very, like, invite me to respond in two very different ways, like Mm. very different ways. Um, Just, just the difference of identifying, I believe this, or I'm uh, just because we just wrap our identity around our feelings and our beliefs just kind of easily, but to just step back and say, I'm experiencing these sensations that just gives you a lot of freedom. It's really the only freedom that we get as humans is just to say, I'm experiencing sensations of anger. Be curious about it rather than say, I am angry and you're making me angry. Right. And if you are something, if you are the thing that is, impacting you negatively and of course it works positively too by the way but if if i am the thing that's impacting me negatively then i don't really have as much control over how i react right (laughs) Mm -hmm. rather than going i'm not that thing i'm i am feeling anger and here's how i will respond or you're making you're making me angry is even worse because now i'm a thing that you're in control of right? right yeah right good stuff so yeah we tend to identify with the object not the verb Mm. We are verbs. We are life, right? Mm, I like that, Phil. Um, I'll go through these next ones quick. Um, Bill, you mentioned this actually in our very first um, uh, podcast. I think it's number 53. You described it to me. This exercise of becoming aware of awareness, right? You talked about yourself being in the backseat, watching yourself as the driver and saying, hey, yo, bro, not that turn. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's separating my ego, right? In a sense, my ego, I would, I would take out of my head and I would put it on my shoulder. So it's still there. It's a little canary. It's, it's giving its input and I see it. I feel it. I know what it's doing, but I also recognize I'm not it. And so, yeah, I I love it. So I have people sit and just reflectively just say and repeat over and over and over aware, aware of awareness. I mean, we're all aware of something. The problem is it's the thing. It's the object that overwhelms our consciousness, right? Well, we want to be able to take a step back from object-pointed awareness and become aware, become aware of awareness itself, which for me is the primary quality of spirit, which means you're taking a step back into your essential nature, permanent mm-hmm. nature. So, so I have people just sit and reflect aware of awareness and do it. I mean, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it until you have the experience of awareness itself, not awareness of something, but awareness itself. Um, I do the same thing with this other one. You're going you're gonna to have to uh, mute Brittany. She'll be after me here in a minute. Um, <laughs> um, people who are um, God-oriented, I find... Um, this works really well to repeat this mantra, God in me. And a lot of people can kind of take that step. Uh, God in me, they can feel presence within. And then God as me, that's a bigger step. Just repeating that until it becomes a, um, really an experiential reality. So God in me, God as me. See, in some way God is in me, but God is also acting as me. Uh, We get the me screwed up and it doesn't look anything like God. So that creates all kinds of problems for us. But I have people reflect on that. And after a while of repeating that and just holding it in consciousness, um, they feel a very profound um, union, intimate oneness with God, and it awakens a sense of, of um, presence within, divine within. It's just another phrase or mantra that can be used to try to capture that deeper reality. Yeah, and, and I just want to note, and it goes back to kind of the pushback we were giving earlier, which is when we use the word God, it it implies for many it's triggering because it implies there's a conscious being out there who's sharing space with us, for instance, in that exercise. And, and again, I would, I would suggest, and I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're saying. It's just for those that that is triggering for to think of it more as the connective creative energy of the universe, I think allows the same uh, insight and enlightenment to happen while not feeling triggered that there's some conscious being who doesn't resolve real world problems, who's sharing space with you. Right. So I'll share my teaching. If it's, if you like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just giving people permission to change the words that they need to. Um, When people ask me who or what is God, I never describe a person. God is pure consciousness existence being. That's what spirit is. Spirit is formless reality. God is formless reality, okay? Um, 
you know, materialism has a huge problem. I mean, somebody convinced me that that um, a particular collection, right, of unconscious molecules get together and create consciousness. I mean, that is a huge leap. It's much more likely that 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 the eternal is consciousness, existence, being itself, which is formless. It has to be formless. And that out of consciousness emerges a movement that creates vibration, that creates energy, that creates matter as we know it. You know what I'm saying? So, so if people ask me who or what God is, I'm going to describe God as formless reality, which is how I define spirit. And, and it is from formless reality that the world of form, matter, thought, emotion, individuality comes from. The Again, the ancient scriptures are always describing God as impersonal, which is pure consciousness, existence, being, and personal. Well, personal implies a limitation. Do you see? Nothing's personal without being, I'm a man, not a woman. I'm six foot, not 10 feet. You see, there's always a limitation in describing personality and personhood. But the potential, the virtual reality of of the individual, of the person, is in God, is in pure consciousness, existence, being as the impersonal spirit. That impersonal spirit, and we're having to put words on this, but decides, or for whatever, you know, whatever the right word is, uh, uh, in the yoga scriptures, is it's the one became many, right? Whatever that process is. So God now manifests a world of form, which creates a world of personhood and individuality, whether it's in creatures or things or people. And then God manifests through that individual or through that individuality. So God becomes personal in and through me. I'm the personal expression of God. Does that make sense? It's fascinating. Yeah, I think I think where we I think where people will start to diverge, and I'm already seeing some questions show up as you were talking, was I think it's because the how consciousness, either if you're even if you're a materialistic, you know, atheist type, how consciousness emerges is really fundamentally mysterious. And it does appear that consciousness exists all the way down. Right. That it's just that uh, it's not like a, a certain kind of animal becomes conscious. Right. 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 Mushrooms like, are conscious. conscious. Yeah. yeah. Consciousness seems to go all the way, all the way down as a fundamental nature of reality. And so we just we just really don't know enough about the nature of consciousness, which is why there's so many theories and the people who are asking questions all have their own theories and you have a theory and I have a theory and Bill is a theory, but it's, it's very, it, it, I do think it's the most mysterious question of reality. I mean, even, you know, our, our best scientific minds on it and studies on it will just come out and say, this is really mysterious. <laughs> and no, we don't have the tools to. We, it, it, yeah. it really is just mysterious. But I have worked with Sufis a lot. And something that Sufis do, if you ever get in a circle of Sufis, we're actually going to have a Sufi um, a Sufi guest here in the next couple of weeks, 
is when they sit around in a circle and introduce themselves, they'll say, I am God, you know, and then they'll kind of introduce themselves, but they'll sometimes not even say their name. They'll just say, I am God. And, um, and so I have worked with that. Some, my spiritual mentors, a Sufi. And so I, I, I don't mind the God language, God and me, God as me. I don't mind that as long as I can meet that word in my own way. Right. Sure. And, and I think as long as, because we all kind of, people may call it something different, but the place that we're talking about that people have called God since for oh, yeah. thousands of years, um, you know, we all can experience that or we all, that's our highest fundamental trans transcendent reality. It's our, our highest ethic even can act as a God, right? This is our sense of what God is. So I think as long as we're able to all meet that word in our own way, I think it could be powerful to do that. Mm. Uh, I, I summarize this as God needs me. I, I, I don't have the the uh, boldness to say I am God, um, but God needs me as much as I need God. The language is flawed here, right? Need, but I can't think of another way to say it. In other words, I need access to this impersonal, formless reality. God needs access to the personal dimension through me. And the personal dimension is going to be healed and blessed and redeemed through us. You see, it's God working. They are, they are personal problems. God, I'm, this is imputing personality, right? Um, God is trying to to solve through persons. It's my responsibility to do the healing, to do the blessing, to do the... Yeah, I hear that argument a lot in open and relational theology, which is another guest that we have coming up who they really, this is where we talk about the co-creative nature of God, the co, um, just the relational nature of God. I think the issue that I have with that sometimes is, is that, you know, when you say, when you say something like, you know, someone's sick and people will say, oh, we're working with God to heal that person. You know, we're praying, but we're also doing all these science things to save them. You know, we're washing our hands and 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 doing surgery on them and bringing them things. And we're working We're we are God. The problem is, like, if you take God out of that equation and just say we are doing this for someone, we're trying to help them and heal them and make them better you can still get pretty far. And so the question becomes, is this God working through us or is this just, or is this just us? <laughs> yeah. That line, that line is really hard to really nail down. Stuff gets mixed in there. I feel like. Yeah. And I think it is more in terms of just the, the um, tragedy of the human condition, hmm. the poverty, the cruelty, um, the problems that really cause people to believe there is no God, right? Because if the God is good and loving, he couldn't allow this. I mean, that's the big, the big philosophical issue here. Well, mm -hmm. as formless reality, God doesn't do that or can't do that. It's done as God is in me and as me. And um, well, anyway, I don't want to get too. Yeah. In the same way, right. I'm the hands and, arms of the connective energy of the universe in my expression. So right. I do the work 
of that creative energy. And, yeah. mm. and I think there's a bigger picture here. I mean, I think we're, we're in a transition phase, but the, the idea is to ultimately bring what we would call material existence formed reality with formless reality into a harmony uh, that reflects the core of, of uh, the nature yeah. of reality, which that is was a good, that was a good bridge statement, Bill. That was, I think that tied that and, up. And, and it goes back to when he did the, the negative practice where you start subtracting things. It's because the moment you name it, you've missed it. Mm-hmm. So as you pointed out in an earlier episode, Britt, we don't have language yet. Language is so, it falls so short of conveying the reality of what the idea is in our head. And in this space, particularly anybody who comes along and says, I've got the right name for it. Here's what it is. They almost always are missing the mark and causing additional trauma to the world. And so the negative subtraction works because no one knows how to name it. So we just start taking things out and knowing it's still there, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a whole nother way of dealing with these concepts, which is Phil's putting it in his language, but he is speaking. There, there are people in the comments who are seeming to dismiss what Phil's getting at. And I'll stand up for you, Phil. No, I'll stand up for you, which is these practices work. They point you towards something bigger than you or you bigger that you didn't know. And, and the triggering language it just, you have to come up with new words if that's bothering you. Some people it will connect with deeply. There have been people in the comments who said, amen, you know, essentially, hey, that's great. Same experience, love it. And others are finding difficulty in the language. You have to shape it to your own experience. Um, but these practices do, in fact, work. I, I can't see. I blocked the comments, so I can't see it. I didn't oh, gotcha. Yeah, I don't want to be distracted. Uh, I'm being aware of time. And I know we wanted to, to do some chemical talk. Um, there, I'll just mention this. There are a variety of practices that I would call embodiment practices. So instead of really trying to transcend um, the limitations of, of uh, physical sensation and thought and so forth, the idea is to go deeply into it. Because if, in fact... Um, our existence, physical existence, mental existence comes out of spirit. There's a connection there somewhere. And so if I go deep, 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 deep into a practice of embodiment, I ought to be able to discover that. And so um, some will use vibration or chanting or music or um, um, as a way of going deep into the body I, I, um, oh, I don't know if I, years ago, I, my meditation practice, practice was primarily transcendental, classic yoga. So you relax the body, you still the mind, you transcend, right? You commune with this deeper reality, you come back into the body. And one day I was, um, putting my attention and awareness within the body. And instead of moving right into my practice, I just decided to stay there for a while. And I had just watched the movie Hoosiers the night before. So, you know, Hoosiers with Gene Hackman, the basketball team. And okay. So twice in the movie, you know, he says, I love you guys. And, and uh, at the end, you know, when the, the camera's, 
in the gym and it's moving in on that small basketball team. The movie ends with Gene Hackman saying, I love you guys. So that, that was at the back of my mind. So I'm meditating the next morning and my attention's deeply within the body. And I'm thinking about my body and I'm thinking about the, the molecules and the cells and the atoms and all of this intelligent activity going on that gives me life and the experience of life. And so why this happened, I don't know, but in my mind, I, I was feeling so connected to these, all these elements of my body. I said, um, I love you guys, you know, voice of Gene Hackman. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this, every cell or atom in my body responded. It was such a powerful explosion, explosion of the right word. It was such a powerful manifestation of energy. It was almost more than um, my nervous system could handle. And I suddenly realized, whoa, not only is there life in my body, there's responsive life, there's intelligent life. And I spent the whole rest of that meditation not transcending, but going deeper and deeper into body awareness and in yoga philosophy, there, you know, there's spirit, formless reality, and then there's form reality out here. Well, in the middle is prana. In the middle is life force, life energy. And if you can link into that conscious awareness of that life force, that intelligence and energy that makes life work, and you go deeper and deeper into that, what I suddenly discovered was I ended up, I popped out in the same place the other way. I popped out in, in pure awareness a consciousness of pure awareness and being but i'd done it through and in the body not by transcending the body a whole different pathway so i try to get people to some do this easily some don't but to use their breath to move attention and awareness through the body head to toe or front to back however they do it and do it long enough where you can start to feel the energy and the life that's literally present in every cell of your body. Just a little practice, you can start to feel that. And if you abide in the, the consciousness of that life, of that force, of that intelligence and energy, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, I am more like that than I am this, right? Five fingers, five toes, the real me is more like that intel that combination of intelligence and energy than it is the manifestation of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you feel like this is an area where Christianity is lacking, or at least, you know, it has to pull from other tools, from other wisdom traditions? Because whenever you have, and this this happens kind of in our Puritan forms of Christianity, whenever you're trying to subdue the body in order to go to a trans, you know, transcendent place, whenever you're trying to subject the body, you know, it's the body is weak, but the spirit is willing, that kind of language where you're trying to overcome the body. Do you think that that is a, is a stumbling block for Christianity? Well, certainly because so much of Christianity is based on, on discipline and control, assuming the body, there's evil Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying there's not evil in the big picture, but but assuming the body in and of itself has a certain evil and carnality right. and devilishness mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. And so it's got to be whipped. I mean, literally whipped, right? Mm -hmm. Or controlled through mental discipline. So there's always this tension and resistance. Well, tension and resistance is always going to block you from awareness of spirit, right? From awareness of formless reality, from, awareness, from uh, awareness of the deeper reality. So, you know, that's why... 
you know, it's, it's relaxation, it's calmness, it's openness, it's surrender. Um, and that can be done in and through the body. But I think you're probably right. There has to be an acceptance that this body is a manifestation of divine life. I screw it up. I mean, I can do evil things with it, but in and of itself, it's, it's a creation of the creator. I mean, it's a manifestation mm -hmm. of, of uh, the deeper reality and as such has value and worth and meaning and purpose. Um, so the body needs to be honored, cherished, appreciated, nurtured, because it can be a vehicle for spiritual awakening. Mm, I love that. I feel like that message is missing in some of our American forms of Christianity, especially. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so those are kind of the practices I usually share with people who are, you know, ha having a hard time in meditation, need a glimpse of the soul. That's the idea to get a glimpse of the soul. Aha. That's what this is about. See, now I know where I'm headed in my practice. So that, that's helped a lot of people that are in that stagnant phase or discouraged phase. I think, that's, I think that's beautiful. And I hope that those will, all those practices will be online in nice classes on your website soon. Right, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> oh, accountability and responsibility. I'm uh, going to hold you to it, man. <laughs> Britt, how time-wise, are you... What, I'm what okay. You need to, I'm good? okay. Let's keep going. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm fine. I just, I wanted to stick with your two-hour window. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be close to that, I think. All right, um, all right. Let's branch off for a moment. So those exercises, those practices, again, more than half of them I've had profound experience with and absolutely would point people to try them um, because I think, I think if you, and just a simple, like you say, just a few minutes with any of them, maybe one or two of them won't work for any given person. As you pointed out, I think the majority of them would work for anyone who put, put seriousness into them. And maybe I'm over speaking there, but I think that would be the case. Um, we want to talk for a moment about drugs, specifically psychedelics. The last time you and I had a conversation, Phil, which was an earlier episode of the Almost Awakened podcast prior to Britt joining up. And I don't know, Britt, if you ever listened to that episode. Yeah, I did. <clears throat> there was, you and I were pushing back against each other because I, I consider you a very wise voice. And yet it seemed like there were places where you weren't making space for a different approach that I found, at least in my own life, deeply valid. And so one of the places we were talking about was uh, psychedelic drugs because um, I don't have a meditation practice. I've meditated. I've spent time with a few people in workshops and things who have pointed me to meditate. And the experience was uh, added. It added to what was going on. But I just am too lazy to get up 20 minutes earlier, to go to bed 20 minutes late, or you know, to waste my lunch break, not wasting it, but sure. spending it where I don't want to spend it, right? So drugs have been that. Um, one thing I've used is ayahuasca and, and that would be its own podcast. Maybe someday, Britt, you can entertain me and we can talk about that. That's, that's going to another planet, but mushrooms, LSD, uh, cannabis, other things. And I'm for the first time kind of announcing that on this podcast. So we'll see what comes of that. But, um, you, you had asked me the other day, Bill, have you read the immortality key? Um, which I wanted to, it's Brian, uh, Mira rescue. Uh, who's the author of that. And he's suggesting that the mystical experiences found in religious canon should at least be examined as possibly being caused by psychoactive substances. And he provides a ton of evidence that says, at least in lots of cases, that is what happened. 
And I know in that conversation that you had with me, Phil, that you spent some time saying like, Hey, I'll have to consider this. And then now here we are having this conversation again, and you brought up the immortality key. I, I want to kind of see it, it. Where are you at today? And, and what do we think about um, psychoactive substances as a tool for deeper awareness um, about the things that are important to you? Yeah. Um, again, I was born in 1950. So I was a teenager during the sixties in California. So just ponder that for a second. And um, so I was immersed in that emerging drug culture. And a lot of my friends were smoking marijuana and taking LSD and, and it was just huge. Right. And sadly it wasn't done responsibly. I mean, it was being done by very immature teenagers, young people. Um, there was a lot of excess um, deaths, psychological disturbance. Uh, several of my friends, uh, uh, it, it literally ruined their lives. So I was a bit, you know, I've just always that, that left a deep impression on me. Um, when I, you know, Richard Albert, who became Ram Dass, was in that era. So I remember articles about him. Of course, he took psychedelics, had genuine mind expanding experiences that linked him with, you know, what he believed was a more accurate, authentic, genuine, deeper reality, but um, was having a hard time meshing that with his day-to-day -day living. And he spent a lot of time being depressed. He ends up searching in India, finds a yogi, starts meditating, gives up drugs, and then finds his access through uh, meditation practice. Well, that also left a deep impression on me. Um, you recommended uh, Polar, Pollard's book. Uh, uh, yeah, um, Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. Okay. So I read that twice, and um, that had a substantial impact on me. First of all, the fact that we have receptors in our brains that can receive these chemicals tells me that there must be a purpose, right? We've co-evolved. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a connection. There's a there's a meaning here. There's purpose here. Um, the, I mean, the brain, our our brain can create Valium, right? We don't need a tablet, but very few people have the skill to do that sort of thing. And of course we dose things very nicely now and um, you, you get the effect that's desired. Um, so, you know, I began thinking, gee, I wonder if this is just a dosing problem, so to speak. In other words, there's a valid use for these because the brain on its own can produce it. We didn't talk about breathing techniques. I don't, I know there's a disagreement about whether or not hypotropic breathing or Wim Hof breathing uh, creates DMT in the brain or not, right? Some say yes, some say no. Um, I've done Wim Hof breathing and it puts me in a state of present moment awareness. Um, I'm not sure, is that being induced chemically, right? People are experiencing this and haven't meditated as I have. So if they're having that experience, there's some kind of chemical thing happening. So I don't have any issue believing that, um, that there's receptors for these. Our brain could probably even produce these if we knew how to do it. In some ways, we seem to be maybe be accessing those chemicals. And those chemicals are present because they do allow the brain to expand its function to not be just completely absorbed in outward attention into the mm. material world, but to open up its potential and its function for accessing and discerning and perceiving uh, you know, what we're calling the deeper reality. 
I have no issue believing that chemicals could be a part of that process. Um, there was a time when I was meditating um, and I could feel things happening in my brain. I mean, in, in my yoga tradition, the, the belief is, the teaching is that the practices that we do literally restructure the brain in such a way that it's refined in such a way that you can perceive um, pure awareness and pure consciousness. So changes in the brain are taking place. And I've had my brain imaged by a guy who does this, and he can point out the areas of my brain that have changed to be able to uh, process higher states of awareness. Now, when I experienced this, I experienced it as electrical. I could feel movement and tingling, and it felt electrical to me. It could, as, it could very well have been chemical. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm right after I read, I, after the second time of reading, actually, after the second time of reading uh, How to Change Your Mind, where he talks about really valid use of psychedelics, um, scientific use of psychedelics for productive ends, whether it's expansion of consciousness or it's, you know, use with dying people or people with certain diseases and so forth. After I read that, I had about 20 minutes where I thought, dang, I need this experience so I have knowledge, right? I need to partake. <laughs> I need to partake of the fruit that I might have knowledge. And um, so I sent you a text. I don't know if you remember. I said, hey, where do people get this stuff? And uh, you were very that's, the, that's the hard part. That's the problem. <laughs> you, have to, you have to meet a 40-year-old man in a, in a trailer out in the middle of a field. <laughs> And yeah. and he's not stable, so it's that's where it gets sticky. <laughs> so then uh, you then, can go to Nevada. You can to get some of it. You know, you can make a little trip to there. But anyway, so I'm thinking about that for about 20 minutes. Well, then I went back through the book where I'd made notes, and I suddenly realized um, it took me 20 years of daily practice, but there were few, if any, cosmic experiences I hadn't experienced in meditation without the light show, okay, without extreme um, phenomena in terms of light and maybe sound and motion and so forth. Anything substantive that he described in that book I had experienced. So I thought, gosh, um, I'm not sure I even need to do this, you know, go through the whole exercise. So I just decided, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I didn't feel like I would be missing anything or not have any knowledge desired. Um now, it's certainly unfair for me to say it's wrong to do that. And you need to do it my way to spend 20 years and come, you know, come back and report. Well, that's especially absurd. especially with things like depression and PTSD, where oh, we're seeing yeah. such yeah. great results. Tell someone, you know, just meditate 20 years and you'll feel better. Like, oof, that's a tough pill. That's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. When I was working in hospice with dying people, you know, I tried to do some meditative things with them. But man, when you're panicked and fearful and nausea and in pain, Mm -hmm. No, there's just no way to tend to that sort of thing. I, I would use music and binaural beats and different ways to try to calm people's brains. Um, if I knew the right dose of whatever uh, chemical to use that would relieve uh, fear and pain, I would certainly do it if that was their choice, you know. Hmm. So you have and shifted some, you would say, then? I, I really have. Where I would go, well, I don't want to go there yet. Um I think responsibly done, supervised, 
you know what I'm saying? Some intelligence in the supervision and dosing and so forth. It seems to me that this is a valid way, like these other methods I have mentioned, of opening consciousness, opening the brain or whatever it is to an experience of the deeper reality. I don't think in the end there's going to be a substitute for the personal work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a shortcut in the sense of a chemicals doing it. But if it's accessing the same thing meditation is going to do over 20 years, it's the same thing. And um, if it opens that window where people realize, wow, there's a reality here that's not limited by form and time and space, um, that seems valid to me. And uh, I still think, I don't know that just repeated doses of that is going to result in the mastery of states of consciousness. I mean, in the end, I don't think you want to be dependent on chemicals in an artificial way, outside induction. Right. But it is a kind of glimpse like we've been talking about. Yeah, a glimpse into the soul. Yeah, it'll it'll glimpse something for you. And then, then when you move into a, let's say, what I'm calling a spiritual practice, hey, I got the vision, right? Mm -hmm. I know there's a formless reality out there. I know there's a um, however you would describe it, there's a um, state of being or consciousness or experience beyond what I normally experience in the body. Yes. Um, and I think then a, a reasonable spiritual practice would maybe discipline that and develop within yourself a mastery of those states of consciousness. So I have a question for you, Phil, then this is on this subject, but I need to set this up a little bit. So, my um, my master's degree is in the future of American religion and something that's really interesting. That's So I'm always watching, like, what does this mean for the future of religion? So moving now to, like, what you're seeing, you've been watching religion and spirit, the world of religion and spirituality for many years now. And what we have is, like, we have the Harvard Divinity Program that is now creating a program of psychedelic studies under Harvard Divinity. We have um, churches in Portland that are doing an ayahuasca sacrament. We have this kind of reawakening. Um, Some of it just from experience with these plants and some of it from these studies and these books that are showing, hey, the roots of this religious and mysterious and mystical experiences, we now have tested some of these holy cups and holy sites and there's definitely traces of you know some psychedelics going on here so all of that you know kind of coming back into public discussion do you see that the future of religion uh is going to be reclaiming psychedelic use in order to revitalize revitalize religion since it is in some senses dying it's it's boring the kids aren't going, everyone's bored, nobody's getting anything out of the this kind of response that we're having to religion is psychedelics a way to reanimate religion um, so that you're having these experiences like we used to in tribes and holy times, you would have a psychedelic experience as your tribe, it would connect you and then you go about your daily life and um, you know, you're not dependent on it, but do you see this as the future of American religion? Boy, I have no way of knowing. I, I uh, It does seem like in many places it's becoming desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, the function of certain churches and religions, they're losing. And they're losing many members in many cases because it's not 
value added spiritually. They're not having deep, rich spiritual experiences. Um, Bill, I'm sorry, I sidestepped the immortality key, but you know, in the immortality key, there's some pretty big claims there. I mean, he's essentially mm-hmm. saying the foundations of religion, spirituality, reason, science, agriculture, Western civilization, you know, is all the fruit of of the discovery of these chemicals that expanded consciousness and allowed people to move forward with an expanded awareness with creativity and and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, I'll just jump in here for a second, which is when I did ayahuasca, there were 14 of us. We were in a, we were indoors and usually it's, you know, again, when it's practiced in certain places, it's outdoors. It's always with a shaman. You, you can't do it on your own. Uh, you wouldn't want to do it on your own. It wouldn't be a recreational thing where on a Friday night, I take it and see what happens. Um, all 14 people went to different places. Some people were meeting their deceased ancestors. Other people were confronting their abuser with some trauma. Um, me personally, I went on this really cool vision quest where I recognized how ritual is created, why tribes do certain things. Like I felt like I learned 50 books worth of material in a five hour, you know, moment of, of my life. And I think the secret, Brit, I think what you're pointing to, I think there's truth to this, that you're already seeing religion dying and the use of psychoactive substances as healing tools increasing. And my experience that night and on other occasions, but profoundly on that night is that when you give people a chance to dive differently into reality and you teach them that their experience is for them and it isn't a therefore for the whole group, because I think that's what religion does. Religion takes a mystical experience by one person and imposes it as the therefore for everyone. And because to some degree, much of what's going on in your head in these moments is fiction and other parts of it are reality. And you're now seeing the world with a different lens. um, It becomes clear that whatever experience you're having is individualized to you. And there are, there's overlap and there's things that are completely contradictory. And so to take the things you learned and to say, Hey, I learned something on this ayahuasca journey that we all need to do would be over. We'd be missing the mark. But what the cool thing is that happens, all 14 people had the chance to have a different experience and then come back together and say, here's what happened to me. And so the uh, space for learning was exponentially greater, right? If I go to if I go to church and we hear a talk given, yeah, there's some difference and we might all have a different need met, but there's also way a ton of overlap. In these experiences, it's so much individual, it's so specific to a person that everybody comes the next day meeting back together, essentially having been on a different vacation, you know? And so the learning is, I think, profound as well. Um, I I couldn't speak highly enough. Again, I I also want to just throw in the caveat that some of these substances aren't safe for everyone. If you have some issues with uh, uh, perceptions of reality, not being stable, schizophrenia, uh, extreme bipolar, you know, those kinds of things, depression is another one, severe depression. You want to maybe steer clear. If, if those things don't affect you again, you go get your own advice and decide whether or not you do or don't. But most people, again, I would guess in the you know 95 to 99 percentile have little issues with them. 
Um, and for those who take them, the experience, it becomes crystal clear. The moment I had some of these experiences, when Paul says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, right. I can completely relate to that. Right. Um, when, when certain people claim visions or mystical experiences, I can completely get that. Um, it, it, during my ayahuasca experience, I spoke to aliens in a cave. They didn't give a crap about me. They were just doing their own thing. They weren't negative either. They were just doing their own thing. And I was in the cave with them. And um, I, I just learned so many things that night that I can't help but consider that a profound part of why I think the way I do today. Well, if the anyway, world stops blowing up and they come to save you, I hope you'll give me a call. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, again, I don't think they're real. It was my brain, just like in your dreams. When you have a dream at night, you've got stuff going on inside. And sometimes your dreams are a way to resolve that, but it's with a fictional story around it. And right. sometimes these these tools give me a chance to see my world, but from a different lens. And that new lens makes a world of difference. I sh when, when I sober up, I am different profoundly. And I am now yeah. prepared to go out into the world differently. I think that's the really interesting thing. And to some people who think that this is in the same categories as I would even say marijuana or, or um, alcohol, you don't see people at the end of their lives saying the, one of the most transformationally spiritually important ex it, some people even say the most spiritual yeah. experience of my life is yeah. an experience with psychedelics people don't say that about getting drunk yeah. with their friends they don't yeah. say that that was the pinnacle of their life right yeah. and so there is something something going on here that to be honest we don't we still don't fully understand yet but but it seems to be that we've co-evolved with these things and it also seems that religion has much more has been influenced by psychedelics much more than we realized historically. And so it, it begs the question whether, um, you know, how this is going to be reintegrated back into society, hopefully in a more healthy way than, than how you talked about growing up in the sixties, Phil. So yeah. it's very interesting to me, for me, my experience with psilocybin, it, it just felt like 10 years of therapy. Just, I faced, um, my fear of absurdity, which was really subconsciously driving my behavior. And I faced it and I mourned some things that I needed to mourn. And um, I really came out of that, like Bill says, fundamentally different, fundamentally yeah. more whole. In religion, scare, religion is also scared of making it safe for us to have these mystical experiences without them being able to lay down the collective law on what these things mean for all of us, right? Well, right. it brings up this comment that someone says here, that's what scares me, psychedelics mixed with, mixed with indoctrination. Yeah. That's that's where you get actual drinking the Kool-Aid kind of stuff, which, yeah, right. that is scary. That is something to be aware of. Yeah, the right. secret but is we've to gotta find, we've got to find a way to maybe integrate this in a healthy way because there seems to be something here. Yeah, the, the, the phrase I always heard when I was doing some of these things is the medicine is the teacher. And so nobody, anytime another voice tries to tell you what any of these things mean, you'll, you'll make your own meaning from them. And that's the meaning that needed to be made. Um, the medicine yeah, and, is the teacher. And, the, and, you know, it bears fruit or it doesn't, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, what came out clearly in those books were the, was, were the positive impacts, the life transforming impacts in a positive way that, that caused positive change in a dramatic way. Um, 
whether or not, you know, it's kind of fun to whether or not Jesus had a spiked last supper. You know what I'm saying? Uh, well, that's at the edges of skept- of uh, yeah. That's, that's at the edge. Yeah. I don't. My personal experience is I don't believe he would need that. Um, the question is whether or not in the early Christian church, as as were in other movements, clearly who use psychedelic drugs, you know, did they do that as a way of of opening the door to the deeper reality that they could then be pursued in other spiritual ways or with other spiritual disciplines? Yeah, that's that's the historical question of of Christianity's is Christianity's success due to the Greeks opening up this right. kind of window into eternity and dying before you die. Right. And then you put Christ on top of that right. and it just integrates and explodes. So and that's see, an, it's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah. But it's impact. It's real impact. It's not listening to a dull sermon or Sunday school lesson. Right. No, it's real. And being told what to do. This is impact that transforms and then you can follow up on. I mean, that's my experience with contemplative prayer and meditation. On but, at least, on at least two occasions, Phil, I was profoundly different after than before. Pro, like um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine who I am today without those, at least those two experiences. Yeah. Well, let me report something that's kind of in the ballpark here. I've had some meditation students that later come back to me and start reporting all kinds of craziness. They, they'll go into meditation they think or they've either created or they think they've seen a vision. They come to certain conclusions about it. Their lives are nutty. Yeah. I, I mean, somehow that, which is supposed to be relatively safe, um, is producing people that are fantasizing and, and they're, they're self-deluded. They've used an alternate state of consciousness to somehow fulfill ego needs to have special knowledge or be in control of mm-hmm. others or to have powers mm-hmm. that others don't have. And they're making all kinds of excessive claims that are, to me, uh, obviously uh, nonsensical. So, I mean, it doesn't even take chemicals for people to. to, Right. That seems to be universally human across the board. Um, So how that would be integrated into. The future of religion. Worship. Wow. Um, It's already being done, by the way. There's already religious sects that are coming up that essentially use magic mushrooms as their sacrament, right? Like there's already, this is already happening and it's growing while religion, the, the old form of religion is dying. Yeah. I, I, I think as drugs become legalized across the country, recreational and otherwise, people are going to have the experience, recognize the value and it will continue to grow. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have, I mean, I'd love to have this personal knowledge I'd like to see these groups and see the individuals, see what the result is over time. I just don't have that. We don't have that. Yeah. Now, but, Anecdotally. Uh, boy, that would be fascinating to study. Yeah. I, I do have to run. I got to pick up a kid from school. Um, anything else from you guys here? We could, I'd love to revisit this at some point, maybe a couple months from now we can yeah. sit back I, down and really dig into it. Just one last thought here. Um, I, I really do think at first, um, expansion of consciousness and deeper perception, what I would call deeper spiritual perception does seem to occur as a result of changes in the brain uh, and the expanded use of the brain. I mean, the brain and the nervous system as it has evolved clearly was intended to go both ways to help us explore the material world and to help us to discern the, the deeper reality, the formless reality. 
Um, I think what I'm discerning now, and again, it's, you just don't know, but it's my experience is now that the spiritual perception that took place as a result of refinement of the brain is now occurring beyond the brain or outside the brain. So that leads me to believe death, my brain dies, but the consciousness isn't going away. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes sense. I don't know that I believe it. Well, I, yeah, I don't think Bill and I are there yet. And that's fine. And I'm not there yet. In other words, I feel this is a new opening for me and I'm trying to understand it and receive it and develop it and then assess it. Right. I'm not mm-hmm. at the place where I can come to a firm conclusion, but where this seems to be heading is um, the brain and nervous system was needed at first um, to make that connection. But because we came out of this and our formed life came out of this um, pure consciousness existence being that is a part of me. And that is also present to be able to um, have that experience and knowledge and discernment. So uh, I guess what I'm, I'll say hope I'll keep it in hope. Yeah. What I'm hoping here is that even when the brain dies, that consciousness doesn't flicker out because it was substratum anyway. The brain was needed to make that interface between that and the material world, but um, that interface isn't going to be needed at some point. So that's kind of where I'm headed. Gotcha. Yeah, all good stuff. I mean, uh, again, I love these conversations where there's disagreement and pushback and we try to figure out what what the collective value is among what we're talking about and people that are listening or watching can kind of poke around in those in those places too. Um, anything else from you, Britt? Yeah, I just like you, Bill, I really enjoy that we're diving into what is mysterious, what happens after we die, what is consciousness, what does it yeah. mean to be human, what are these plants doing, and mm. you know, how can we integrate it in a healthy way? I mean, the reason that these conversations are interesting is because none of us really have for sure the answer. We're just trying to figure it out, which makes these conversations really fun. So re- mm. we really, really appreciate you, Phil, and uh, love having you around. Oh, yeah, amen. Uh, it was great. I, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Appreciate your time and uh, have an awesome day, my friend. Okay. Take it easy, guys. Listeners, uh, viewers, uh, don't hesitate to go on to almostawakened.org. Click the donate button. And if we you are, to- by the way, Bill, we are one tenth the way towards our goal for the year to keep this podcast running. So we'd really appreciate if you enjoyed this conversation to let us know. Yeah. Awesome. And Britt, if somebody wants some extra coaching, where can they go? NoNonsenseSpirituality.com, and you can contact me there. Awesome. Have a great day, everybody. All right. Thanks. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.